Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Good. How are you doing? Fantastic. We have an amazing guest, don't we, Alan? We have an absolutely amazing guest. He has taught me so much in the last couple of years about what's going on in our financial world. Uh, people need to listen to Tom. Uh, and anytime you see anything about Tom Gober, read it because it's very enlightening. All right. We're so excited to have you on, Tom. And uh, Alan has some a lot of great questions. So go ahead, Alan. I'm ready. Tom, to start off with, I know you're a certified fraud examiner and forensic accountant, and you've been doing this a long time. Tell us about why you do this and for how long. Well, I've been actually doing what I do best for 37 years. 37 years ago, I began as a young insurance examiner. I examined insurance companies of all types. I became accredited and then certified and became the state examiner in charge. So it was my job to examine all of the insurance companies in our state, many in other states that did business in our state. And I had to run both the financial condition and the market conduct examinations, which means I got to say literally every aspect of an insurance company. So 37 years in total. Well, that's quite a while. I mean, your expertise can't be uh, can't be questioned. Let me ask you, what did you learn during those years assisting the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office that has helped you the most? Yeah, so let me cover a little bit about my career path. I've had a wildly challenging and odd sort of career path. I've actually worked undercover for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. I have served as an expert and a consulting, uh, both consulting and testifying expert on white-collar criminal cases over about 12 years uh, for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, occasionally for IRS CID um, and also U.S. Postal Inspectors. It was those kinds of cases where, because they were criminal cases, we had access to federal grand jury subpoena power. We were able to get emails, voicemails even, recordings. We got to see the tender underbelly of this massive insurance industry. And I learned some things that were pretty spooky. Uh, some of the companies doing some things that would shock, I think, all of you, your listeners. You must have learned some stuff that you that you uncovered. You're like, this could be a book in itself. It could be a undercover series, right? The what 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 is how it's run and stuff, right, Tom? Some of the things that I've seen, even going all the way back. 37 years, if I take the types of schemes that worried me the most, and I actually made them my specialty, and that is what I call sleight of hand reinsurance, where insurance companies pretend they've laid off substantial risk, future death claims, right, to another company, it's only an appearance in fact, they're hanging on to the promises to pay, but treating their accounting as if they no longer have those obligations. Very nasty scheme. I focused on that 37 years ago, and I'm telling you, the very first time I spotted it and called it out, I was threatened. 
In fact, every time I tried to stop these large reinsurance fraud schemes, I got in trouble from you know all different areas. Uh, but that taught me that this must be important. I need to figure it out. So now jump forward 37 years. And I have to tell you today, the practice that worries me the most is the same practice. There are many for-profit life and annuity carriers who are using what I call sleight of hand or financial engineering, reinsurance that they enter with their own affiliates, usually offshore or even sometimes in the US in these what are called secret captives. And, and so that's what I want to focus on most with you guys. Are the, there's really two categories, okay? Two categories that worry me today. The investments. If an insurance company is investing substantial sums in really high-risk asset categories, uh, when I say high-risk, I mean also illiquid. It would be difficult to sell in a hurry, right? That's one category of risk relative to the company's surplus. So surplus is simply the excess of assets over liabilities. I don't want to get too complicated here, but as long as assets are greater than liabilities, that difference is surplus. And when you have too much in high-risk assets and the values drop, you understand that comes out of surplus. So we keep an eye on that. But my biggest concern is a lack of transparency. This goes all the way back 37 years. They enter into transactions where literally billions of dollars go offshore. But once it's there, we can't see it. How about that? <laughs> crazy so, stuff. Yeah. Spooky. Well, you know, some of the stuff that you taught me, Tom, is, is the TSR ratio. I, and I talked to... I talk to major insurance companies all the time. They have no idea what it is. And uh, when I tell them about it, uh, we're looking at transparency solvency. Uh, you know, they got these major carriers out there that one slip of the deal, you know, one slip, slip up and they're done. And people don't know this. Yeah. And uh, an important point there is a pattern that has emerged in recent years is that while total assets have skyrocketed, right? That's a good thing. But total liabilities have actually increased at an even faster pace. So what you've got are very narrow, what I call razor thin buffers. These surpluses are so thin relative to their risk profile, right? And so what the TSR does, uh, you might not can see it here, but actually have transparency, surplus, and riskier assets. What we, what we do is we take an annual statement, the source document for an insurance company that is a, a thousand pages, sometimes 3,800 pages. And I, I focus, I shine a light on the two areas of risk that are greatest to what worry me the most. Those are concentrations of higher risk assets relative to surplus and this reinsurance with affiliates. Now, bear in mind, when it's reinsurance with an affiliate, you're re 
really talking about moving money from one pocket to another. It's not out to some big independent reinsurer in Germany. We're right. talking about a sister company in Bermuda or Barbados or even Malta for Pete's sake. So we total up the high risk assets and the non-transparent reinsurance. We add those together and divide it by surplus. All that does is reduce to one ratio, a simple number, that the lower the score, the lower their risk profile and adequacy of capitalization. The higher the score, the higher the risk, and the less the transparency. So while you see a simple one number, it really does a lot for you because so much of what I have to go and find in these annual statements, almost no one even knows where to go to find that stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to help the average consumer and their advisors to see through the initial appearance and dig deeper. Right. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. So you should be really concerned about low T TSR scores for certain insurance companies not to do business with, right? Yeah, the, the lower the score, the better. Oh, actually. higher. So oh. a low TSR, the lowest in the nation last year was 25%, which meant that if all of the high-risk activities of that company, if they even dropped to zero, they've still got 75% of their surplus left. Mm -hmm. On the other end, though, the highest company in 2021 was 8,300%. In other words, 83 times their surplus, which meant just the least bit of write-downs on those high-risk recoverables could break that company. So the spectrum is wide. You want to be on the lower end, and it works. It just makes sense. So, Alan, are you, is that one of the things you really look at with your clients? Is that TSR? Oh, absolutely. You know, when they tell me, well, this other guy told me about this particular product. I said, well, first off, is that a, a, an equity company where they look out for the stockholders? Or is it a mutual company or a fraternal company that looks out for the policyholders? And I said, and then I asked him, I said, have you ever heard of the TSR ratio? Well, no. And it's even with these uh, IMOs and FMOs. They, they don't. Uh, they, and they pushed me, Tom, to sell these high, high number, uh, high TSR number of companies. And I tell them, I won't, I won't, I won't even talk to you about this stuff. Well, and Alan, so I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud of you for that. For real. The, the, the largest percentage of advisors, um, insurance agents and advisors and fiduciaries look at the ratings like AM best or right. standard right. and Poor's. They have an A rating, so they're awesome. And that's as far as they look. And just recently, this is really important. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, just put out an official notice a few months ago that literally said you should no longer rely upon the ratings agency scores because we relied on them in 2008 and you saw what happened. I'm not saying don't look at those scores, but that's just a small piece of it. What I want to see, and remember, this is 37 years of me looking after the consumer. For 37 years, I have found that some, key, some companies, their executives 
care only about doing the right thing for their policyholders, their members. So if they're mutual or fraternal, you don't have an outside investor. What I found across that 37 years, I think I started at just the right time because right after I began, most of the large life and annuity insurance companies began demutualizing. They were mutuals that existed entirely for their policyholders. When they demutualized, something drastic happened. Think about this. It's, it, as a mutual, it's a really simple process. Premiums come in to the pot and start piling up. Claims come out of the pot. Over time, if premiums are higher than were necessary to pay the claims, what happens to that money? They give it back to their policyholders by either reducing the premiums or giving them policyholder dividends. So over time, it's self-balancing because it's one pot of money and only premiums in and claims out. Expenses are static, right? The home office staff, they're going to be roughly the same, slightly increasing each year on these mutuals. But when you demutualize and you have stockholders, suddenly you have a new mouth to feed. You have not just a new mouth, but a louder mouth, an investor who's astute and high pressure. And right away, they begin pushing the top executives saying, look, we want we not only want you to pay us stockholder dividends, we want those dividends to go higher every year. And guess what? The executives, when they enabled the demutualization, they got tons of shares. So they want dividends too. They want their stock options to go up. And what I'm saying is not in and of itself wrong. What I'm telling you is suddenly you're not just looking after your policyholders. You're thinking about, ooh, how much do I need to pay them to keep right. them happy, right? And that is when all of the risk that we're talking about here began. Those companies had to suddenly feed this new mouth and the policyholders. So they, they invested in higher risk assets and they started playing these reinsurance games. So let's, so I'm going to jump and then I'll let Alan talk about this. How do insurance companies make money? If they, if they are a mutual, they're not really making money. They are accumulating premiums, paying claims, and self-balancing by either returning extra money to the policyholders, or if they're short on premiums in a given year, they have to go to those policyholders and say, look, we didn't charge you enough. We've got to go up on the rates. But those policyholders understand why. They know why the rates are going up because it's only for their own claims. It's not that a bunch of money is going to some outside investor. Now, if you are a for-profit company and you have investors, lots of stockholders, as you accumulate funds that I consider to be excess premiums, if you're building up a bunch of profits, it has to mean that over time, your premiums have been higher than they needed be to be to pay your claims, right? Yeah. And if that's the case, that should be going back to the members. Instead, it's going out as cash. I mean, stockholder dividends, that's money gone and you don't get it back. 
The only time that becomes a problem is when over time the the investors demand more than the company can really bear. And that's when you start getting the fake reinsurance because not even the very best insurance company out there is going to have an occasional bad year right. or a series of years where they lose money. But see, because insurance companies are regulated, if you lose money or your surplus gets too low, you're not allowed to pay stockholder dividends. Uh-oh, our investors are demanding it. And if we don't pay a dividend this year, they may go elsewhere. So what do they do? They say, well, you know, temporarily, we could do an offshore reinsurance deal that could poof, create a bunch of surplus overnight. That'll solve our problem for now and we can pay the dividend. You follow me on that? Yeah. But over time, this is such an important lesson. I learned this as a, as a fraud examiner, certified fraud examiner. When you plug a hole in the balance sheet with something that's not real, that hole is going to always get bigger over time because it's not earning its keep. What's in the hole is fake. So it doesn't earn investment income. It actually costs the time of the executives. They end up juggling these schemes more than running the insurance company. You follow me there? Yeah, so what totally. happens is that hole gets bigger. And it's so easy, unfortunately, when you do an offshore deal with your own company, you can... I shouldn't say create. You can create an appearance of more surplus than you have, enabling you to pay out. But when you do that year after year, what happens? You end up with an accumulation of a ton of reinsurance that I can't see. I'm not allowed to go audit in Bermuda or Barbados. They don't let me. They don't let the U.S. examiners. U.S. examiners who regulate the U.S. companies they can't even go see their affiliates offshore. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. That's nuts. I mean, Spooky. hey, Tom, you know, we had 2008. And I know you've, you've had uh, played a part in that. What do you think is going on today as compared to 2008? Okay. Um, it is well documented. And the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, is attempting to get their arms around the issues of high-risk assets, right? They talk about private equity groups have recently joined the industry. They've purchased some of the big life and annuity carriers. And private equity is not accustomed to regulation. By law, if you stick to the rules, you don't have to answer to regulators as a private equity group you're supposed to be gambling with your own money. You're a wealthy person, you're astute. So, but when they reached out and started buying life and annuity carriers, suddenly they're, they're trying to continue this high risk activity, even though the regulators are worried about it. So on the asset side, Alan, you do have higher risk assets going up. But that is publicly known and understood. And I believe people began to see that as we approached 2008. 
they heard about more residential mortgage backs, commercial mortgage backs, right? But on the other side of the balance sheet, almost no one understands about this reinsurance. That's why whenever I get a chance to talk about it, let me just say this. Suppose you had a mortgage with a bank for $300,000. And you know you didn't have a lot of extra money. You may have decent income, but really couldn't afford to borrow anymore. Suppose you went to the bank and said, oh, I no longer owe that $300,000 mortgage. I've transferred that to someone else who's on the hook now. That's what reinsurance is. Oh, I don't have those death claims to pay now. My reinsurer has it. But what if your child is an infant, let's say 18 months old, and you don't tell the bank that the, re the person that's now on the hook is your 18-month-old son who has no money, right? If that son is in Barbados, there's no way of finding out how much money he's got. You see what I'm saying? What I'm trying to say is that lack of transparency is my greatest fear. And by statutes, the laws in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. require transparency. So these transactions offshore, in my professional opinion, are not compliant with the statutes. It's pretty hard well, stuff. But it's true. I, t I tell you, Tom, I think I think this ought to be part of continuing education for people. I really do, but it it will never go because you know they got this is like the lobbying efforts of uh, Wall Street with the Congress. Uh, but it's uh, it's information that I've taken to heart, and uh, I show my clients, and they thank me for it because nobody's ever told them about it. What's it? I don't want us to run too long. How are we doing time-wise, guys? We're doing great so far, so let's keep going. I, I, I'll, this is such a great show, Alan. Let's go till you're finished with your questions, Alan, no all right? All right, excellent. I just want to make sure. So recently, I'm feeling so much better about getting the word out because recently I provided both oral and written testimony to several really important federal regulatory groups. I, I gave testimony to the United States Senate Banking Committee, their chief counsel who reports directly to the chair, Senator Sherrod Brown. I presented about these very issues to the Senate Banking Committee. Just a couple of months ago, I went to Washington, D.C. and provided oral and written testimony to the Department of Labor the Department of Labor who regulates pensions, 401ks, all of those things that fall under ERISA. I presented on these same issues to the Department of Labor. And I'm telling you that both groups listened carefully, took copious notes, and asked great questions. And to me, that says people are starting to wake up. Totally. Wow. Good stuff. Um, Alan, continue. I know you have some more questions. Well, the uh, what, what Tom is talking about, it should be taught. I mean, it's, it's like, I, you know, I talk to people about the effective interest costs. They don't know what it is. I said, well, this is not, not rocket science. This stuff ought to be taught in high school, but it's not. And people can sell insurance and, and stocks and bonds and all this. They need to know about the TSR ratio for these companies. I mean, it's vitally important because 
people are getting a retirement and all of a sudden their their carrier goes under. What are we going to do? Live off Social Security? So is that is that happening, Alan and Tom? That carriers go under? Uh, it happens more often than we hear about because when an insurance company gets in trouble. Remember now, insurance is totally regulated at the state level. Each yep. state has their own insurance commissioner. In my professional opinion, that is a weakness. You've got 51 jurisdictions trying to govern. But the issue there is how can you expect a small, understaffed, underpaid state regulatory group to regulate such an immense, very sophisticated financial services industry, right? That has now gone global. Virtually all of the companies I'm talking about have at least one presence offshore or in Germany or in Switzerland, right? So how do these little state regulatory groups keep up with it? I'm not faulting them. I'm just saying we need a greater... Um, overarching scope of regulatory supervision. That's my professional opinion. Let me give one really good example that I think is important. Remember, I used to be an examiner 37 years ago. As the examiner in charge, I knew that by law, if an insurance company is not the only company, and almost always now, they're part of a big group of companies. They may have 45 pages of subsidiaries and affiliates all over the world. The NAIC says if you have more than one insurer in the group, you must do what they call a coordinated examination to examine all of those insurers simultaneously. Why? The oldest trick in the book as a certified fraud examiner. I learned of one company, all they did was sell grain and they kept it in grain silos and they pulled off one of the biggest frauds. Before the auditors arrived, they would make sure the silo they were going to audit was full. And then before they went to audit the next silo, they would move the same grain to the to the other silo. And they did that over and over. So you have to audit all of the companies at the same time. And that's an old audit fundamental under both GAAP and SAP, right? So what happens? You, I ran examinations where we had multiple insurers. You had to coordinate and do them at the same time. Well, I found out they are doing that in the U.S. for the U.S. companies. But what if they've got a company in Iowa and a company in Delaware, but they have three in Bermuda and most of the business is going to Bermuda? Yes, they examine the Iowa and the Delaware simultaneously, but they don't examine the offshores at all. They've never been allowed to examine those companies, even though they're part of the same group. And that is a huge shortcoming. And again, it adds to the lack of transparency, right? Well, Tom, I, I got one last question, and you kind of made, made answered it already. But are there books in the law, excuse me, are there laws on the books that prohibit hidden affiliated companies? 
or reinsurance? There absolutely are statutes in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., that are modeled after what the NAIC required as the Holding Company Act. And it's really pretty simple, and it was the, the act was beautifully written. And there's two key principles. If you take away nothing else from today, if you can remember these two principles, if you have a transaction with a truly independent party, a sophisticated independent party, we can assume that the transaction will be arm's length. You've heard that expression. Or in insurance parlance, fair and reasonable. Because the two parties understand what they're doing and they are independent of each other. The NAIC said well, that becomes a problem when you have multiple companies that are affiliated because they're under common control. In other words, the same person can require that the entity on the other end of the transaction do something that might not be in the best interest of one or the other party. So the Holding Company Act has two things that make sure that's not supposed to happen. One is any material transaction with an affiliate must be on terms that are fair and reasonable. In other words, we force that arm's lengthness on them. And the other is its books and records shall be so maintained as to clearly and accurately disclose the true nature and details of the transaction. In other words, we need to see both ends of the transaction to know what the substance of the transaction is, not just the form. And in all of these deals we're talking about offshore and with these secret captives, we can't see the other end. And so in my professional opinion, these transactions are being, I'm not, I wouldn't say they're being allowed, but they are occurring and the regulators aren't stopping them. Mm -hmm. despite having the statutes in place to do so, right? Wow. Is there a place people can find information on you, Tom? Thank you. Yes. Um, we have a site that has information about the TSR. And by the way, there is a seven-minute video. It's very brief. I recommend everybody watch it. It's called What is the TSR? What is the TSR.com? If you go to what is the TSR.com, there's a video right at the top, seven minutes. It lays out all of the stuff we're talking about, but it also gives you some other resources to dig deeper. And I have a new book just came out about these same issues. And the, that should be available soon on that same site. All right. That helps. That's fantastic stuff. Alan, what a great guest. Oh, absolutely. But uh, if anybody's out there, just like what Tom said, uh, go to that site. But if they want to know about a particular company, contact me at 910-551-1046 or my strategic wealth, the number zero at gmail.com. I have the TSR ratios for all of these companies, and I'll gladly get it forwarded to them. And if you don't, you'll reach out to me and I'll get it to you as soon as yeah, I you're right. But outline is so important because you don't want that that insurance company to fail or not show the best practices. Find the right ones that are the best TSRs. It Let me like. say one last thing because this is really important. What I am saying sounds pretty spooky, 
but I testify as an expert, my integrity, my truthfulness in testimony is everything. So I want to make sure everyone understands I'm not creating numbers. I am literally extracting the company's own numbers from their sworn annual statements. So all of these analyses we do are using the company's own sworn data. Okay. All right. To be sure that people know that I'm I'm just talking the truth, you know? All right. Well, that's awesome. Great stuff, Alan. Appreciate it again. Uh, thank you, Tom. And that was the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, guys. Take care.